These are the oldest stories. Online at oldest stories. And this is part two of the overly long fabric episode. It got split into two parts because I recorded it and then I realized it was about an hour and 10 minutes long. And so it's just been sliced in the middle for your uh, convenience and joy and happiness. I really hope it brings you joy. Anyway, last episode, if you uh, have forgotten, we talked a lot about livestock and how our model family has purchased a lot of sheep and they have a lot of daughters and they're going to do a lot of textile work. And so they've taken now all the wool from these sheep uh, for the year. They have plucked the wool off the sheep and they have begun combing it. And now they've finished combing it and this episode is going to pick right back up right where it left off with the combing having been completed. Now, once the wool is all untangled and set in an orderly pile, it needs to be turned into thread. Until about the year 1200 CE, that is only 800 years before you listener listened to this podcast, all thread was spun in the exact same way around the entire world. Imagine that you have a stick called a spindle about the size of a modern pencil. It can be made of wood or bone or whatever nice, solid, cylindrical material is available. Next, on the top of that stick, you place a round, solid rock, carved to be pretty evenly circular and flat on top and bottom, a bit smaller in diameter than, say, your palm. Now, this round rock, called a whorl, has a hole in the middle to attach it to the spindle stick, and often, sometimes, has a small notch at one point on the outer rim. Now, both spindle and whorl can vary in size and construction a good amount, especially when you look at the world as a whole, though it's usually never larger than you can hold in your hand. And, like I said, this tool has been found with a million little variations all over the Earth including ancient Mesopotamia. And so Ilsha Higalu starts by taking some of the wool and hand-spinning a little bit in her fingers, making a basic short bit of thread. She ties that first bit off to the spindle underneath the whorl, and then runs the starter thread through the notch at the edge of the whorl, if she has a notch. They don't all have notches. Some of them may have had things that fit on top that create a notch. Some of them may have been completely notchless. Like I said, million little variations. Anyway, she takes a fistful of wool, and with her two fingers, she spins a bit of the loose wool around the starter thread. So, under her hands, she is now holding the string in one hand, and the spindle is dangling freely off of that thread. And with the other hand, she gives the spindle a nice solid spin. It spins in the air, the weight and diameter of the whirlstone giving it momentum through its mass and radius, and giving it stability through the gyroscopic force, 
This is the same force which keeps a modern bicycle upright when it's moving forward. If you want to look it up on YouTube, look up gyroscopes. They just naturally spin in a certain direction without any, without as much support as you might think they need. Anyway, since Ilsha Higalu is still holding the string in her two fingers, all the string below where she's pinching is now being spun into a thread. The spin of the spindle tightens the loose fibers into a bound string, and the weight of the free-hanging whirl pulls the string taut. Now, Ilsha Higalu is keeping a careful eye on the string, watching the loose fibers get trapped and monitoring the diameter of the string. If it grows too tight, it's going to tear the thread and she's going to need to start over again. Once it's where she wants it to be, she adds a bit more loose wool, finger tightening with her free hand, then she releases her lower hand, allowing the spinning spindle to now spin this next 10 or 20 centimeters of wool. This process continues, her free hand keeping the spindle at a constant spin, and her hand constantly backing off, adding more and more wool a little bit at a time. And the, the spindle doesn't get lowered to the floor as she does this. Instead, it's wrapping around this newly spun string, forming a bundle of thread around the spindle stick until, the, at last, the stick is full. Now, the string on the full spindle stick can just be slid off the bottom, and Ilsha Agalu can start again. Spinning, like combing, is slow. It uses your muscles. I mean, it's not like working in the field using your muscles, but I mean, you hold even just this little pencil with a rock on it, you're gonna, your arm's going to get tired. But you've got to do this all day. It uses your muscles, and you have to pay attention. Even though it's incredibly dull and incredibly repetitive, you can't put a podcast on in the background while you're doing this because podcasts haven't been invented yet. Spinning wool into thread, it's really boring. It's really hard. That's, that's life in the ancient Bronze Age. We have it so good. You have no idea. Anyway, beyond just being hard, though, this is one of the more careful steps. Not only does the spinner need to be careful to keep the thread consistent throughout its whole length, adding the same amount of wool in each centimeter and ensuring that the spin amount is about the same throughout, but this is the second key point in determining the quality of the resulting fabric. The fineness or thickness of the thread is going to determine a lot about the resulting fabric, and in general, each woven piece needs two different thicknesses, a thin thread for the warp and a thicker thread for the weft. Now, spinning the spinner slowly on a lighter whirl and passing the thread more quickly can result in a looser, thicker thread, while a faster spin and a heavier whirl and allowing it to spin more before passing the thread will make a tighter, thinner thread. Now, all of these factors need to be balanced because, remember, the different qualities of wool are different thicknesses, hence the different strengths and softnesses. The inherent quality of the wool 
combined with how it's spun, can result in a wide variety of different thread qualities, though it's almost always the case that the finer, more high-quality threads are produced less efficiently than the coarser threads. And so Ilsha Hagalu considers the trade-off with every bundle of thread she makes in terms of what ultimately she intends to make out of it. Now, ancient thread, even if it might not have been as perfectly consistent as modern thread, was at least customized down to the last stitch if the creator wanted to. But now, for each of these three wool qualities that we have, remember we have some fourth quality, third quality, and very high second quality wool, Ilsha and her daughters spin out two thicknesses of thread, giving them six neat piles of string. About 20% of the wool was found to be unusable back during the combing process, and then another 30% of the wool is either going to be ruined or found to be unusable during the spinning process, leaving them, on average, with about half of what was originally pulled from the sheep. This is, this is very expected. Some of the unused threads were repurposed into a thick, low-quality woolen rope, useful for many small household tasks. Some of it was collected to help start fires, and much of the rest was blown away by the Mesopotamian wind to decompose out in the wilderness. The process of spinning is about twice as slow as the combing process, but with about half the material being unusable, it ends up taking about the same amount of time. Two months, if all the women work together, or it's going to occupy a single woman most of the year, operating in assembly line fashion, assuming she just gets stuff from the comber, then the spinner starts going, and then she passes that on to the next lady. Uh, Likely, it took a bit longer than two months, since spinning is the most technically difficult of all the steps in textile manufacturing, and unlike plucking and combing, the younger sisters have to spend a lot of time watching and emulating before they can be trusted with making consistent thread. And even then, they're going to be started with the thicker, lower-quality, fourth-quality threads and the older sisters or Ilsha Higalu are going to be making that real nice second quality thread. Now the quickest and most engaging and exciting step of the process, though still far from easy, far from quick, is the actual weaving. The Mesopotamians used ground looms, often quite simple ones, and Ilsha Higalu likely has nothing more than a few straight pieces of wood pinned to the ground a few meters apart. This isn't really a frame like we would think of. The two pieces of wood are just fixed to the ground with basically tent pegs, something like that. There may have been two more pieces of wood of about the same size, which are not secured, and they're going to just support whichever area that the weaver is currently working on. They're going to get moved up the textile as the weaving gets done. Once the two main pieces of wood are fixed firmly to the ground, Ilsha Higalu and her oldest daughter work together. For each quality of fabric, they've prepared two thicknesses of thread, 
and the thinner thread is going to be used for the warp. Now the warp has been measured out into individual strings of uniform thickness, usually about three to five meters long. Ilsha Hagalu and her daughter each take one end and carefully fasten the individual warp string to each side of the wooden frame, making sure that the warp is tight and straight. Working together very carefully, because you don't want to break these fine, nice threads, but you still want them nice and tight, it's going to take a few days. And it's very important that each string be tight and parallel to the other strings, or the finished product is going to be defective. And we don't recover a whole lot of ancient textiles, because of course they do decompose quite fast. But of the ancient textiles that we do have, we do know that some of them were just defective. Some people would put the, would put the warp strings down very carefully. Other people would, I mean, maybe they're still being careful. They're just clumsy. I mean, I'm, I couldn't do it. I could tell you that right now. Um, but this is all part of the ancient world. Uh, it all depends on how good Ilshigalu is at putting this together. And so that we're having a happy story, Ilshigalu is quite good at it. So, once the warp is fixed on the loom, a whole bunch of strings tied very tightly to two pieces of wood, sort of like a guitar on the ground with a million little tiny strings, like one of those Chinese harps or something. I don't know. Once the warp is fixed on the loom, Ilshigalu takes the thicker thread and ties it to a small stick that looks sort of like a thick needle called a shuttle. Now, we don't actually know how many weaving techniques she knows, but for those in the know, which I wasn't until I looked this stuff up, she definitely understands the tabby weave, the gauze weave, and the pile weave. The tabby weave is the very basic kind of weaving, the type most of us non-fabric-oriented people think about. The shuttle passes over one warp string, then under the next, up and down, up and down, up and down, and then when it reaches the end, it goes up and down in an opposite pattern, binding all the strings into a mesh of fabric. Gauze weave is similar, and I... I don't really know how to describe it. Like, you're still going up and down, but you're, like, twisting. Every time you go through one or two of the warp strings, you, like, twist the strings so they're backwards and they hold it a little tighter. It makes a... I mean, it's gauze. It's uh, less dense, ultimately. Uh, it keeps the warp strings from being quite as close together. Uh... I don't really know how to describe it super well. I'm going to post some pictures and some links over on oldeststories.net because I'm not a fabric expert. And weaving crafts really quickly get very involved, which I guess like every hobby. This wasn't a hobby for Ilsha Hagalu, but if you go on YouTube, it's definitely a hobby for a lot of really nice people. Pile weave... This is important now. Well, I mean, as important as any of this stuff is. Pile weave makes the fabric stick up. Think like a towel or a thick carpet. 
Now, pile weave was probably invented by pastoralists, but was picked up and popularized in Sumerian fashion during the transition from wearing animal hides to woolen garments right around the beginning of history. Weaving is much quicker than the other steps of the process, and Ilsha Higalu can weave about one half or maybe one whole square meter of cloth per day, depending a lot on her setup, until she reaches the end of this particular rectangle of cloth. It's unclear how large a specific woven textile would have been, though it's likely that there would have been a great deal of variation. I mean, all of this would have had a lot of variation from even just woman to woman, but also from town to town, from tribe to tribe, from century to century. But we do have one surviving really good text that describes the process of cloth production, much of which I'm cribbing off of here. Um, and even though there's no surviving cloths, some of the text indicate that like three and a half meters by three and a half meters square would be a kind of standard cloth. Not a standard, but an average cloth. This is a bit over 12 square meters, so it's fully possible that quite large pieces are being produced by expert weavers. Now, in a domestic context, a cloth was likely woven precisely to the dimensions needed. This is a pretty easy feat because normal garments were just long rectangles wrapped around the body. Tailoring, while certainly was known about, doesn't seem to get much developed until you get to Assyria in the Iron Age. Now overall, depending on a lot of little details, it does seem like a general rule of thumb in the Bronze Age is that about one kilogram of wool can get produced into about three square meters of fabric. And I'm going to give you some numbers here. This is me trying to interpret a mix of ancient, very badly damaged weaving uh, clay tablets and merging them with modern understanding of textiles, which is not something that I know at all. My wife does crochet. That wasn't even invented back then, so I have no idea. This means that she has about 15 square meters of fourth quality cloth, the average standard type of cloth. She has about three square meters of third quality cloth and about six square meters of second quality cloth. It's very hard to tell how much cloth went into a finished product of Mesopotamian clothing. But in the modern era, about three square meters of fabric is used for a normal skirt or a normal shirt for an average American woman. So using three square meters per garment as a base guess, from 20 sheep sheared for the entire year, or not sheared, plucked for the entire year, she probably has material for maybe three to five outfits made from the 15 square meters of fourth quality cloth. That third quality cloth may be used for one or two nicer outfits because it's going to need some extra thread, some extra uh, fabric invested to make it a little bit nicer. And 
maybe some extra for underwear. You would want, we don't have any Mesopotamian underwear. I'm going to go out and say with no evidence whatsoever that you want the nicer fabric around your genitals. That's just my guess. It's also possible, though, that this third quality fabric won't be used for making any clothes at all. But once it's woven, it's going to be left, maybe, as a fabric sheet, which can be sold for other goods at a fairly standardized rate. Now, that second quality fabric is almost certainly not going to be turned into a garment by Ilshagalu. Instead, it's going to be sold to a temple or a palace, quite possibly for a small amount of actual silver, which will be the only metallic currency items that the family likely will ever handle. The things they sell that are high-quality manufactured goods to a temple. It's not going to be metal currency in the sense like there's not coins with Sargon of Akkad's face stamped on them. No, it's going to be worked silver in very small bits. Common folk like Ilshahigalu aren't strictly prohibited from owning or wearing higher quality fabric, but there really does seem to be a sense that someone wearing something above their station is inappropriate, and there may be social consequences, and it sometimes in history there were laws on fashion. There were there were fashion police. Um, as to what they would actually wear, what ancient Mesopotamian faction, fashions would have looked like, this is an incredibly challenging topic to study. We have extensive artistic representations of people wearing clothes throughout the Bronze Age, which do tell us some things, like the fact that clothing and art was remarkably static over time, though there were a few gradual changes. This same artistic representation, though, is almost exclusively images in clay and stone. Or statues. I guess a statue is different from an image, because one is two-dimensional, one is three-dimensional, but you get my point. In classical Greece, and later into the Renaissance and into modern times, there's an idea that art should directly depict the subject so clearly that an alien from outer space could look at it and understand what they're seeing. However, outside the Greeks and the Renaissance and modern times, these cultures, ancient art and worldwide art generally uses a series of shorthand indicators, assuming that the viewer is going to understand what's meant by certain line patterns. I mean, think about anime. It's not terribly realistic, but anyone watching a modern anime can understand what they're supposed to be looking at most of the time, unless it's really weird stuff, just because we share a visual language with other modern people. Both for modern, more abstract arts and for the art of the ancient world, the expected viewer is going to be immersed in the same culture as the artist and have the same sort of visual reference points in the real world. Consider the fact that in the Harry Potter novels, the modern series of books, I'm pretty sure that the author never clearly states that Harry Potter has two legs. Now, 
We aren't confused by this, but space alien archaeologists 10 million years from now might debate the matter when they read the book. Similarly, it was likely obvious back then that certain line patterns in a sculpture represented maybe tufted wool to the contemporary audience, but nowadays those same patterns have caused people to speculate that the ancient Mesopotamians wore dresses made of feathers, or of hundreds of leather strips, or if what looks like a dress wrapped around once around the body was actually a much thinner piece wrapped eight to ten times down the legs. Now, some of the proposals that I've seen when I'm researching Mesopotamian fashions are truly absurd. Straight up, truly absurd. They show very little familiarity with the written record. But they do show how hard it is to get data from our very few visual sources, and the written record is, I mean, in fairness, hard to access for a fashion YouTuber, which is... I have to say most of what I was looking up just because it's really hard to find ancient Mesopotamian fashion stuff. Uh, but it's just hard to get data from visual sources, which is what these people, these modern fashion scholars, are used to looking at. They're used to looking at grand paintings or stuff like that. Thankfully, we do have enough written records to know that for most of Mesopotamian history, whenever Ilshihagalu is living, wool is far and away the dominant source for textiles. Leather, in the form of skins with the fur still attached, appears to have been commonplace until about 2500 BCE. But already by the Akkadian Empire, the transition to mostly wool and some linen has taken place. In those old days, it seems that the fur on the skin may have been gathered into tufts, either as a byproduct of the leather making or skin preservation process, or they just did it for decorative purposes because it looked cool. And it seems that once people started making woolen clothing, they made it initially in imitation of those hide goods, with pile weaving creating puffed sections simulating tufted fur, which is likely the source of confusion for many amateur historians. Like I said, they're used to prioritizing visual over written sources, like you... You can't understand, you can't have read any written sources if you think that they were using a bunch of feathers on their clothing, just because we there were cultures that used a bunch of feathers on their clothing, like the ancient uh, Mesoamericans, the Aztecs and the Mayans, and we know they used feathers because written sources detail the economy required to get a dress full of feathers. It was a lot of work. We don't have any of that. None of that in ancient Mesopotamia. Anyway, the most iconic outfit of the ancient Mesopotamians is called the Kaunikes. Imagine you have a towel and you wrap it around yourself. Now, for men, it gets wrapped either around the hips or around the bottom of the ribcage. For women, it usually gets wrapped just above the breasts, though if it's with another garment, it may be wrapped under the breasts. Some, in some contexts, the breasts may have been exposed. 
Um, it's not clear if those are occult ritual sort of things, or if there were certain places where the women just went around with their breasts exposed. Sounds scandalous nowadays, but it's quite commonplace in hot parts of the world all over the earth. Either way, this Kaunikes runs down and covers like a skirt, down to the knees, or maybe down to the ankles, or anywhere in between. Specific lengths almost certainly varied according to the situation and the era. Now, it's not 100% clear how it would be fastened, if it was tied or if it was pinned. We don't have any evidence of that in the art, and we do, have, we do know they could make pins, like out of lead, uh, possibly out of bone, but we just don't know if these pins were for holding the clothes like that. At the bottom edge would be some fringe on all but the most basic and poor of outfits. Ilsha Hagalu knows multiple ways to finish a kaunikes to match different patterns to different fringes. And the particular fringe and weaving pattern combination is often distinctive enough that a piece of fabric can be recognized by anyone in the community as belonging specifically to Ilsha Hagalu's family. I mean, they loved fringe at the ends of their, of their clothes, hanging down. Did it have any practical purpose? I don't know. It may have been a pure fashion thing, but they really seem to have loved it. It's all over the place. And the uniqueness of the fringe and weaving pattern, maybe also the dyeing patterns, is so strong that you often see pieces of cloth given as security for debts or as ways to indicate that a particular package comes from a certain family, kind of like a signet ring made out of fabric, or like those the, the Scottish Highlanders and their different kinds of plaid kilts. I don't even know if that's true. I've heard that's not even true, but like they say that the different patterns of plaid used to match certain households and families. I don't know if that's true in Scotland, 100% true in ancient Mesopotamia. They didn't have plaid, they had weaving patterns and fringe uh, types. But what's perhaps most interesting about this simple waist wrap, the kaunikes, is the name. Now, in the modern scholarship, if you want to go look it up, you'll hear it called kaunikes, K-A-U-N-A-K-E-S. But this word actually comes from Greek. Now we have here a style of dress visible on the oldest Mesopotamian artworks. Look at, look at your podcast player, unless you're driving, don't look then. Uh, you're going to see this smiling statue. This is Ebi'il. Uh, he's on the thumbnail of every Oldest Stories episode, and what he's wearing is a kaunikes wrapped up about the waist, and no shirt a super common fashion for men in his time around 2500 BCE, like way back at the start of woolen clothing. But the Greeks, they didn't know about Ebi'il. He precedes the classical Greek age by some 2,000 years. Yet when the Greeks finally did start interacting with Babylon at the end of Babylonian civilization, the kaunikes was still common enough that it defined the style of Mesopotamian dress 
in Greek eyes. In Akkadian, it would have been called gu-na-ku. But think about what it says about a culture that this style of dress persisted for at least 3,000 years. The details, like patterns and colors and fringes, they certainly changed, but the basic item of clothing endured for longer than we've had the oldest chapters of the Bible. But the gunnaku, or kaunakes, was not the only thing worn by Mesopotamians, especially as time went on. Very plain wool tunics were often worn either as undershirts or sometimes as the only clothes for very poor people. On top of a tunic, there were various patterns of shawls, often wrapped so as to go over one shoulder and leave the opposite breast exposed, a fashion seen in both men and women. These shawls appear to have generally been more ornate, with multiple wraps around the body giving more opportunity to show off the elaborate fringes of the cloth. All of the cloth would have been dyed. It's unlikely that anyone but the most miserable folks wore cloth that was a plain, the off-white of undyed wool. Blues, browns, and yellows were the most common, since those dyes were the easiest and cheapest to obtain. And for nice occasions, there were reds and greens that could also be used, and with those, a full palette was theoretically available to ancient dyers through color mixing, aside from the lightest shades. Obviously, we don't have any Mesopotamian dies because we don't have any Mesopotamian fabrics. Famously, the color purple was only available from the Mediterranean coast and had to be hand-extracted from the Murex snail and was extremely expensive. For the clothes Ilsha Higalu is making for her family, what mix of them are kaunakes and what mix are tunics and shawls depends on the time and fashion though she likely knows how to make all three items and knows how to make a simple mordant to mix with some basic blue, brown, and yellow dyes extracted from plants to fix the color into the cloth. And, of course, she knows how to make simple thong underwear for men to wear and small underskirts for the women to wear beneath their clothes. For the men, those thongs are important. These are basically tea thongs, and they are typically these working men, Arabi and Ayabani, working out in the fields. They're going to work all day with nothing covered except their groin area, sweating under the sun. This is a a, a tea pattern. It's a, a round bit around the waist and just a straight. A bit of cloth to cover the delicate bits in the middle. All these clothes that Arabi's wife and daughters are making, they're not supposed to be worn constantly, the way modern people wear clothes all the time. For one thing, washing is vastly more difficult for them than it is for us, so there's no reason to be sweating on them in the fields. For another thing, working outside is going to wear the clothes down. And while for this household, they've produced the clothing completely self-sufficiently, 
they still understand the time value invested in the production and the opportunity cost of wearing these clothes instead of selling them well enough to know that they are in their own way. Clothes are super expensive, even really basic clothes. Super expensive. This has taken all year to make like a handful of clothes, a, a, like a relative bit of fabric. You could walk into a craft store right now and buy this much fabric for like not a lot of money. I don't know. I haven't been to a craft store in a long time. Anyway, this is an outline of clothes. My goodness, it's gone way too long. Uh, I've split it in half, but it's it's really it's really really interesting. I. I've never been a clothing person. I think it's fascinating. Once the clothes are made, it's kind of a struggle for me to find things to say. Now, I came across whole books about fashion history when researching this, and one thing I could never really get past in all of this is the question about why I should care what they wore in great detail. I mean, I think the production process is fascinating. I mean, clearly, it's filled up two episodes. But uh, once our model family has a finished product, then, th then they wear the clothes. And that's, that's the end of the story as far as I'm concerned. You're going to need to go somewhere else for the analysis of what their clothes implied about their social structure and stuff like that. And frankly, Mesopotamian fashion is such an underserved topic that I don't even have anywhere good to point you. Anyway, I've talked a lot about clothes. So that's that. We're done. Next week, we're going to finish up this series on ancient industry with a look at the very thing which defined the Bronze Age. So join us next time as we look at mining, smelting, and forging a piece of ancient Mesopotamian bronze. Thank you for listening.